0: I entitled this morning's message part nine of this series an army of one and I want to talk about an issue of identity I'm going to lead you through some things this morning that will lead down to the fill-in-the-blank on your sheet And the first one is a concept about parenting um, I do not pre- pretend to be the world's greatest parent. Um I try my hardest. So of course, I think I'm as good as I possibly can be. Otherwise, I would change however I'm also clear that I'm just a human being. All of us are trying to parent in many different ways. And some of us are doing it well and some of us are not. Let me share an area that I think that we need to grow in. Um, Good parenting casts visions for their children. Makes identity statements that their children can rise to. Bad parenting make statements about a child's identity that are degrading and hang on them like weights for the rest of their lives. What do I mean? I mean that when a child does something, let's say they do terrible on their report card, and they come home and their father says to them, you are so stupid. Here's how words work. Even as an adult, if someone says something like that to you and they say, you are so stupid, usually in the moment you have enough strength, anger, animosity, firepower, whatever it is, to fight back on that one, unless you're a child that cannot filter. And what you will do is say, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not stupid. You're stupid, right? That's our attitude. We will basically say, You don't know anything about me, so your words didn't penetrate me. They rolled right off me. That may be true that day. Problem is, two weeks later, when you do bad on a test, you will replay that scenario in your head. And you didn't do well, and you're trying to figure out why, and so you'll replay the tape, and you will say, I didn't do well because I'm stupid. You will then internalize that comment. What we must do for our kids is to cast out statements of identity, identity that they can rise to that are good about them, that we want to flourish. Here's an example. Practically speaking, if you go up to my kids and you ask them, hey, are you smart They're going to go. Yep. I'm really intelligent. Why do they believe that? Because I told them that I told them uh, every time they do something good at school, I tell them, man, what did you do? This is incredible. What? And every time they make something, this is you, this is creative. Wow. I can't believe you even did that. That's amazing. Well, where'd you come up with that idea? And I make a big deal about all their accomplishments. What that does is it highlights in their minds moments to react and go back to and say, wait a second, if I didn't do well on this test, that's odd. You see the difference now from an outsider looking in, they're going to see my children differently than I do. They will look and they'll go, well, they're certainly average. Well, they're, they're this, they're that, and they'll look and they'll go, what, what they drew, I mean, it's okay. It's not that awesome. I mean, you're kind of making a big deal out of a, out of a stick figure, aren't you? Here's another thing that happens with me in my leadership, and it's just how I'm built. It, it, I, I try to encourage it in myself, but pretty much it's kind of just how God made me. And what it is, is I rarely ever see people where they're at. I don't have that ability. What I do is I see people where they're going. The idea of potential is all I see. So people will sit down and talk with me and they're down in the dumps and they feel bad about what's going on and they look at me and I'm always optimistic and they always think that I'm somewhat messing with them, that they're like, oh, I see you're just trying to be positive guy. I'm going, no, not really. Actually, it's what I see. I never see where you're at. I see where you're headed. So I talk to you of your potential future self. I talk to you and share with you as if you've already moved on because it's all I can see. It's not just potential, it's probability to me. God does that with us. I need you to understand that. I need you to understand that the Bible is full of identity statements about you. What does God think of you when he says you are, what is the next phrase? Well, in order to bring that to you this morning, I did a study on that. I went through a Bible program and typed in, you are, said New Testament, show me everything you got. It scrolled down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses. So I quickly scanned through and had to sort out all the ones that had nothing to do with our context, it would say, you are late, and it was specific about one guy. Okay, that's not it. If it's an identity statement about a Christian, I grabbed it, pulled it out, and made a list. What I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to listen to some identity statements. There is a whole series of different verses, uh, not in any particular order, that I'm about to read to you, because it is what God thinks about you. Listen to these statements and let them soak into your soul. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. On that day, you will realize that I am in my father, Jesus said, and you are in me and I am in you. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. You show that you are a letter from Christ written with the spirit of the living God. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out "Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and you are members of God's household in him. You, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And finally... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who are you? That's who God thinks you are. People looking from the outside, Satan looking at you, sees a failure. God doesn't. Like a good father, He knows where you're headed. And he will say things about you that will be true, regardless of what you think. Like Peter's a rock. Remember? Nobody believed that. Not Peter. But he will be. God sees what he's doing within you. And so when you read the Bible and you shy away from it, thinking that it's a series of challenges, of things that you need to stir up enough energy to go fix... You're reading it wrong. Every time God issues a challenge, it's also an identity statement of what you will become. Why? Because he's going to get it there. If he says, be pure of heart, that is not a slam in saying, all I see is your wickedness. It is a statement that you will become pure in heart because he'll get you there. He knows what you will become because he is within you. This is not a book full of naming your failure. This is a book of vision of what you are becoming in Christ. God will never issue you a command that he will not empower you to do. The fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is simply this. Be who you were built to be. Be who you were built to be. So much of Christianity is shifting our identity to who we are now. Would you turn with me to first Timothy chapter six, verse eleven? First Timothy six eleven. We're just going to read the first two verses and then pray. Paul's wrapping up his Decently long letter to a young pastor named Timothy, his protege, if you're new with us. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What do we see? Identity statement, man of God. What do we not do? Run away from that. What do we run towards? Run towards that. Very practical. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. May we be transformed by your word. Would you work it into us and then begin to work it out with us? That Lord, we don't understand who we are or we'd live differently. Lord, we spend all our time trying to figure out how to be a Christian when we have energy. When we're tired, we stop. Show us that it's far more normal than we ever imagined. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul starts out, he says, but you. But you, in contrast to all the false teachers, the bogus guys that he just finished describing, maybe you need to go back and read that passage. But he began to talk about these horrific leaders that had slipped into the church and were leading people astray, completely caught up in arrogance, completely caught up in greed, wanting to make the ministry everything about how they could get money from other people. But you, man of God... Why would he call Timothy man of God? He said, well, because, you know, all of us as believers, we have the indwelt Holy Spirit. We're sons and daughters of God. So, I mean, it's just a Christian. Yeah, but it's, it's a weird way of saying it. Man of God is used 70 times in the Old Testament of who? People that literally spoke on God's behalf. Like who? Moses, David, Elijah, pretty much big dogs. He now grabs that title from the Old Testament that Timothy grew up under and slaps the title on him. You are one of those. So certainly we're going to live differently, yes? Certainly you are God's representative into the world. So we need to make some adjustments. God is going to move pieces around within you, Timothy, so that you might be the man of God you were intended to be. But you... Man of God, flee from all of this. It means by habit of life, continuously run away from the greed and arrogance. Flee. Obviously, running away from certain things at some point is not good. But there's times when you must run. Yeah? The most popular story of someone running away in the Old Testament is what? Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph. So he's working in this guy's household, the the Pharaoh's wife comes on to him, she's super aggressive, and he always kind of backs away, finally, she grabs hold of him, what does he do? Drops his cloak and takes off out of the house. Now, most of us guys, out of our pride, we would have stayed and fought it out. Why? Because we're thinking things like, you know what, you're not even all that hot. I can handle you. What do you got? I'm I'm a, I'm a man of God. I can handle this. You know what? I've been doing right all along. So what? Bring it. What do you got? Bring your bet. Okay, right? We have this stupid arrogance. There is a time when you go, maybe I could work my way through it, but why am I trying to? Why am I not just getting out of the way? Because what if I'm wrong? What if I can't handle it? What if this collapses everything? Joseph said, I'm not going to sit around and find out. I'm out of here, drops his cloak and bails out. It's the same concept. Paul said, as a man of God, I need you to just consistently, continuously run away from garbage over here that these false teachers are doing. But we all know you can't run into a vacuum. You can't always be against stuff. You have to be for something. What is he running to? Well, there's a whole list of virtues here. He said, here's what I want you to pursue passionately, habitually run after these things. The first one is righteousness. What does it mean? It means in Greek living rightly before God, living rightly before man, examining what it is to be a son of the king. How do you relate to your God and do that? Well, how do you relate appropriately to other human beings? Do that? Well, that's what the word means passionately pursue godliness that word means live as if god is present here that jesus is around that he's walking with you driving with you conversing with you passionately pursue faithfulness that word means loyalty you don't just bail out on god and then come back and bail out and come back and bail out and come back it's this adherence Fidelity. Passionately pursue love. That's agape. The unquenchable love. The unstoppable love. No matter what you do to me, I will seek your best. Period. You can't shut that down kind of love. Passionately pursue endurance. That word in Greek means to stand up under extreme pressures with power. A patience when things are crushing. So that there is an allowance for God to do his work. Passionately pursue gentleness. Now, this is a weird word. I I examined a bunch of different commentaries on it, and some said this way, this way. One finally said, this is an untranslatable word because it's also translated meekness. And it's a phrase used for Jesus a lot, but it doesn't just mean softness. As a matter of fact, it means power under harness. It means that when you're supposed to be soft with children, with a hurting, with a wounded, that you are extraordinarily gentle. But when it comes to fighting wickedness, you're extraordinarily ferocious. So it's a weird concept. Um, all along, whenever pastors talk about it, they use these very common analogies. They'll use things uh, like I've used in the past, things like a racehorse Right? Where you have uh, the horse that when the kids can pet his little nose and feed him stuff and he's all gentle, but the minute the gate opens, all those muscles lock in and he just takes off. And you can see all the power running. Or a lineman, right? Whose whole job is to rip the face off somebody else. And yet if you give him his baby, he'll do a little, hey, look, boo, 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 right? And he's all gentle until game time. Game time, muscle flex, rip and attacks, right? It's the same concept. That's this phrase. It's never ever weakness. It's a Jesus word. And Jesus certainly wasn't weak, but if you, to the untrained eye, he looked weak because people were able to take him down. Now, of course he let them take him down for what purpose to ultimately have victory. But, but to a lot of people on the outside, they don't get that and they won't understand us either. Then he says something really intriguing. Fight the good fight of faith. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy, Paul is telling him to be like him because he said, I fought the good fight. I finished it. I'm about to die. I've done my whole ministry, and I was in there and went blow to blow with Satan. And I am now going to pass away from this world, but I did what I was supposed to do. Fight the good fight. This is a phrase in Greek called agonize. And it's used for any contest, military or athletic meaning anytime you need to win something with strain. Now, although it can be used in a military sense, it's more likely that he's using it in an athletic sense. Paul used three primary analogies in athleticism running, but he'll always use, say it's a race. So it's not that here, boxing and wrestling. Those were his most common grappling analogies, punching analogies, stuff like that. So he's using that here And he says, I want you to fight the good fight. I want you to agonize in the good agony over the faith. I want you to stand in there and be unmoving. You don't flinch. You go in and you hit. You hit hard. And you lay it all there. And you stand your ground. Now, we all go, oh, that's cute. Paul's using athletic analogies. That's because the the games were right next to him. And he knew all about them, And everybody knew him. Okay but his games in Greek mindset are tougher than our games. That's the stuff we don't understand. And I had literally only learned this recently. I didn't know this. The Greek games. Okay. Let's, let's use our games for analogy. Let's use boxing. Okay. Now in boxing, You'll go, well, he was using the 10 ounce gloves and and then there's this, this ounce gloves. And, and you know, it really caused some damage. Everybody worries about head concussions. And we look at Muhammad Ali and we go, man, that didn't go so well. And you can't just pound somebody's brain without having an impact. And we go, oh, it's somewhat barbaric. And you go, wow, I wonder if that's what Paul's talking about. Kind of. Let's kick it up a notch. MMA. I've talked to you about that a lot. Mixed martial arts. Now, these guys have gloves and they are not as padded. They're simply to protect your knuckles. It's part wrestling, part punching, part kicking. And what they would do is literally when they hit you, it really, really, really hurts. That's the point. A lot of blood in that sport. And there's the grabbing onto and all that stuff. Alright, so we look at that and we go, maybe that's what he's talking about. No, let's take it one step further than that. You see, the Greek games are weird for a couple reasons. Remember, they were extreme spectator sports, so the first thing that was very, very odd is all their wrestling was done in the nude. I'm not comfortable with that. I find that very awkward, but I don't think that's the point. The point is, is that in boxing, it was described that the inside of their gloves were made of, le- of fur, so it would keep your knuckles protected, but the outside was ox hide sewn in with lead and metal. Now, that's a little different. That's not even MMA style. That's like, I will rip your face to shreds if I ever hit you. And all I'm going to be doing is punching you to death. Now, that's Greek. That is the put them in the ring and we just watch blood sport. That's the type of punching he's talking about. Wrestling, they would grapple and wrestle and loser gets his eyes gouged out. That's a little bit more extreme. Yeah, we're not doing that not even in Nevada. (laughs) All right. There are rules to what we can do and what we can't do. So when he begins to refer to these little things and you go, Oh, they're cute little analogies about athletics. You're not getting it. It was absolutely brutal. So they would max it out and go all in. If you knew your eyes were going to get gouged out, I can tell you, you're not going to tap. Does that make sense? You're not tapping out. You will stay in there because you cannot lose. So his idea of standing and fighting is the idea that it's not going to go well for you. This is to the death. Let's go. And we're just going to go with everything that we have. Then he uses the next phrase. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Grasp, grapple, grab onto, and do not let go. What does that mean? It means get a grip on and understand it. Don't just walk around and say, hey, I have eternal life. What does that mean? Why? What difference does that make? you got to get a hold on this, Timothy. you got to know what it means and actually act it out. If you're really going to heaven, what's your identity now? Take hold. Hang on to. Get a grip on the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When did he do that? Was it when he got saved? No, that was probably more private. Was it when he was commissioned for ministry? Maybe. Probably not. It was probably when he got baptized. Here's how it would work in the ancient world. The ancient world is you'd get saved and baptized relatively on the same day. We don't do that here. Largely because we're big commuters and because we have piping and systems that we can draw water from a long ways away, we don't all live around a water source. So, We have a tendency to go, well, we're going to do a baptism. Let's all gather at a later date. So someone will get saved and then they may get baptized years later, months later, days later. What that does is it changes what baptism stands for. Baptism used to be an identification statement to society. What it was was far more dangerous than ever getting saved. Because what you would do is publicly say, I'm a Christian. Now, why it's weird for us, and we feel awkward sometimes when we get baptized, is that we've been living as a Christian the whole time, openly. So it seems weird to make a public statement about something we're already doing. We've already, by lifestyle, done it publicly, so nobody really cares anymore. They're like, I know you're a Christian. That's weird. Why would you say that? In the ancient world, you stepped out in society that was dangerous. I want you to picture now in our world today, an entirely communist nation or a Muslim nation. Now, you have a personal relationship with Christ. You found out that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and you live that way. Well, that's good for you. Now try walking out of your house, going out to a public watering place, standing up in front of everyone and saying, I'm a Christian. How popular are you? you now have a target on your back and you will be killed. That's what was going on. So back in this day, they were standing up publicly and the identification statement of saying, I am a Christian was the big deal. That's why baptism was such a massive deal in that part of the world in that day. In the sight of God, Paul goes on. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you. All right. What do you say? He said, in light of God watching you and Jesus Christ, who set an amazing example in front of Pontius Pilate, I'm about to tell you something. What did Jesus say in front of Pontius Pilate? Luke 23, three. It's funny. Jesus went through trial and he was largely silent the whole time. Do you remember that? They kept trying to mess with him and get him to talk and he wouldn't do anything. But then Pontius Pilate had him aside and it was almost as if Pontius Pilate was saying this, Hey buddy, I rule these people. And quite frankly, I don't even care about you. I don't even know who you are. You're, you're interesting. You're fascinating. Love what you've done with a beard. However, I don't care whether you live or die. You don't matter to me. Now I got to find out something. Let's just be honest about this. I'm the ruler of all the Jewish people because we conquered them. So, let me ask you something. They keep saying that you're fighting, you keep saying I'm the king of you and blah blah blah, wait a second, I'm the king. So let's talk King to King. Are you the king of the Jews? What did Jesus say? Yeah, I am. Pilate's like, now we have a problem because you see, we're not both going to be here. And things went poorly from there. The point is is that under pressure Jesus didn't cave. Jesus said, of course I know who I am. And you need to know as well. I don't back down. I charge you command-like orders, military-like orders. I command you, I charge you to keep this command, the gospel, and all that it, ma- all that it means, without spot or blame in its pure form until the epiphany, until the appearing, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, you lock this down and you constantly share it in its pure form. You don't water it down. You don't change it. You don't do anything else. You share exactly what God has told you, what I have told you, and you don't cave. Do we got that? Until Jesus returns, that's your job. Now, this appearing of our Lord Jesus, you know the one I'm talking about, the one which God will bring about in his own time. Okay. Okay. Does anybody feel the tension of the return of Jesus? And here's what I mean. There's a tension in the air, certainly from a good father. And here's why. Because when the father made a determination of when he was going to send the son to come back, there's pressure. And here's the pressure. He doesn't like it right now. Why? Because his kids are getting hurt. And he's not okay with that. So everything in the, every fiber of his being wants to, fire Jesus down and shut it down and beat up the bad guys, right? So why does he wait? Because every fiber of his being is laced with compassion so that more would be drawn to repentance. And he keeps holding off and holding off. And there's a tension there. Who does he love more? Do you understand the tension? It's almost like the tension Is if you had one of your children that needed to be rescued, but in rescuing that child, you killed your other child. Do you understand? And we say, God, why do you wait so long? Which one do you want to die? There's a tension in the air. But what you're seeing increasingly as we move towards the return of Christ is Jesus Christ pressing in and getting closer and closer, causing a panic amongst the enemy going, you have no idea how close it is for me shutting this thing down. Because when he says go and the father says it's time, Jesus grabs his horse and the angels fire out and there's bloodshed. The only reason he hasn't shown up yet is because he loves a whole bunch more. Speaking of God, he inserts like a little hymn, creed. God, who are we talking about? God, Elohim, the Trinity. God, the blessed and only ruler, the sovereign over all creation. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Stop. Who are we talking about? I thought we were talking about God, like the, tr- the Trinity, like all of God. We're even mentioning like the Father in this. Wait, wait. King of kings and Lord of lords. I know that phrase. Who's that? Jesus. How do we know? Well, in Revelation, he's called that twice. Well, that would be weird because then it would be saying that Jesus and God have the same titles. Oh, that would mean Jesus is God. Oh, that's right. He is. God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. Alone is immortal. I thought we were all going to live forever. That makes me immortal. How is he alone immortal? It means he alone is the source of all immortality. Now, three nights ago, it was two nights ago last night, three nights ago, Jillian, I'm putting her to bed. She always comes up with brilliant questions at bedtime. And she says, dad, real quick question. So when did God start? Where did he come from? And I said, well, honey... In our universe, in our system, all our things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's kind of how we were designed, so that's all that we know. Well, God is outside of all that, so those rules don't apply to him. He always has been. She goes, oh. So, Dad, when did God start? <laughs> and so I said, night, night, click, and I turned off the light and walked out. <laughs> so, Anyway. No, we don't we don't get it. But here's the deal is that when we were created, we are forever that way. But God is forever both directions to understand. It's, it's a slightly different concept. Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Why, why would he do that? Hey, I'm going to be so bright you can't even see me. What's the point of that? Now, it's likely a quote from Psalm 102. But it, it was kind of demonstrated to us in Moses's day in the book of Exodus when Mount Sinai. Remember, you put boundaries around the mountain so people don't come up there and people are scared of the voice of God and they knew they couldn't see him. Everybody knows you don't see God unless you want to be killed. And so Moses is up there and even Moses played this game. Show me your glory. Show me what you got. Let me see all of you. And God said, no way. You couldn't even handle that. I'll let you see my backside, which I think he's just messing with him. You remember that? Anyway, so he takes Moses up there and Moses can't handle it. Nobody can handle all of God, but it was that unapproachable light. There always seems to be a light when we were looking in revelation, who was on the throne? Well, it was like this unapproachable light. It was this bright light. Why the light? Because it's a guard. It's a shield. It's a curtain to keep you away. Why? If he doesn't have it, here's what, if he doesn't have it, here's what happens to you. God, it's you. Pfft, and you blow up. OK, so instead of him just poofing and exploding all of us, he puts out some guards so that we can't get any closer. That's the unapproachable light. And You go, well, that's lousy. I don't like that because I can't hug unapproachable light. Ah, hold on. John said it this way. John 1:18. No one has ever seen God, meaning all the Trinity and its power. But God, the one and only who's at the father's side. Wait, who's that? Jesus. I thought he just called Jesus God, the one and only. Oh, he did. God, the one and only, has made him known. You want to see God? You want to see exactly what he's like? Look at Jesus. Contains it down and gives you a hug. It says, this is exactly what I'm like. This is the visible me. All right? If you need something, if you need to talk, if you need to chat, if you need to kick back, I'm here. Now, I have to contain... Because if I show you everything, it's not going to go well. It'll be a very short conversation. (laughs) God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Let's go to the last passage, verse 20. Timothy, as he closes... Now, what did he just talk about? Honoring God. Really weird. He uses his name again. Why? What does Timothy mean? It means honor God. Oh, weird. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. That is a phrase, deposit. If I go away on a trip in the ancient world, I don't have anywhere to put my money, so I give my money to you. When I get back, I want it all back. That's the phrase. Timothy, you've been entrusted with a gospel. Utilize it appropriately. When God sends Jesus Christ back and he shows up, slide it all back over to him that it's been used appropriately. Don't you waste it. Don't you let it go. Don't you let it get stolen. Guard it. Satan's after you. Don't get lazy. Don't let it Don't let it wander. Guard what has been entrusted to your care. And in doing so, here's how I want you to do it. I want you to turn away from godless chatter. Stop with all the blah, 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 blah talk in church. We're not just going to sit there and just talk about nothingness. We're going to talk about something that matters and stop with the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Stop with all the attacks on scripture, on the attacks on the nature of God from these heretics who are saying things like, if you have the special knowledge, then you have the key to eternal life. That's stupid. Stop it. No, that's not true. Don't listen to them. Don't get in their circles. Don't run with those guys. Stick to the gospel. Stick to what you're supposed to do. Stick to scripture. See, some have professed this, this bogus stuff. And in doing so, they have wandered from the faith. Oh, they're still here in church. But their minds are completely some other place. Everything they they say, Timothy, all they're doing is putting it through their little filter and figuring out how they can make their arguments better. They're not listening. Their hearts aren't changing. Don't you get hooked up with them. Grace be with you, Paul. Right? Grace be with you. Sounds like a little simple, bye buddy. Accept how valuable it is. I'll tell you this. If you do not grasp grace, you do not live in victory. You do not live in freedom and you do not understand Christianity. Why? Because grace undergirds is the foundation for all that Christianity says. For example, when Satan comes, he is called the accuser and he comes to completely level you and devastate you and make identity statements about you that other people will deem true. You messed up. You're wrong. You're rebellious. You're sinful. You're screwed up. You're a loser. He will say all these statements about you. When you hide behind the shield of faith, you are hanging on to what? Grace. If your own guilt and shame rises up from within, what are you going to hang on to to keep going? Grace. What is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. It means this. I know, but that's grace. It means I know what you've done with your life. I know what you've become. I know how messed up you are, but I've done something about it. Well, God, I didn't deserve that. Well, that's kind of why it's called grace. You've never deserved it. If you need power to accomplish a task that God has asked you to do, you don't deserve that power. So what is it that gives you the power? Grace, right? Because it's undeserved. God then loads you with resources. The idea that I'm even in ministry at all is undeserved. If you knew what I know, if you knew what God knows, I would not be the pastor. Grace. It's I know, but I've done something about it. When Jesus Christ died on the cross... He wiped out to those that would trust in him and adhere to him and surrender to him. That he would be their Lord. He wiped out their sin. And now they exist under grace. It's no longer jump through the hoops and then maybe you'll get in. It's a, I have you. But God, I know. But I took care of that. We have to become great at understanding grace or we're doomed. There's no way we're going to pull this off because we'll hijack ourselves. So after a big, long, complicated letter of all the things Timothy needs to become, he may feel at the end, Paul, you're killing me. You know, that's not me. What is Paul saying? I know, but there's more. This isn't it. Come on. You really think that God would have me issue you a command without him coming in with grace? Grace be with you. Amen. Last final thing before we watch a video and move on to what God has for us. I gotta tell you that I'm really having a hard time every Christmas season, even as a pastor, keeping Jesus central. I tend to resent the Christmas season because of demands placed. All the and it's not even that they necessarily place any demands on me, it's that I created them in my own heart. It's it's like the family pressures. Where you gotta go here, gotta go here, gotta go here, and then all the big things that you gotta do, and then do I have my presence on time, and you know what, how am I gonna possibly budget for this? And I'm a. There's a lot of anxiety, and I don't need more anxiety, so I almost resent the whole season and just go, I just want, want it to be over. Can we just kind of blow through it? Because I'm not enjoying it. Okay, that's not about Jesus. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out ways that I can make it back about jesus again and i don't know what that's going to be for you but we just finished this passage where it says to you know to christ be all this glory and honor somehow some way let's find a way to refocus on his birthday now that could be a moment that could be something as simple as this all of us we could do more um ladies gentlemen that are going to be doing a lot of the preparing yes there are a couple more dishes you can put on the table But what that's going to cost is that the family's not going to see you. You're going to be back in the kitchen. Okay, maybe we say, that's enough, and we come out. Maybe afterwards, we could spend all our time prepping and then cleaning up, or we can say enough, and let it sit for a second, and go hang out in the living room, and laugh. Maybe there's a time when you say to your family, if it's appropriate, where you say, hey, is anybody else having a a tough time focusing on Jesus today? It's his birthday. How about we just pray real fast? And you do a short prayer of getting everyone refocused on him for his birthday. And then you go on about fun. I I don't know what it is for you. It's not a heavy pressure. It's this idea of if it's somebody's birthday, I think we might want to focus on, on the guy who is his birthday. You know what I mean? Because if I had a birthday party and and no one ever looked at me, but they all came to my house and nobody brought me any presents, but they brought everybody else presents. I'd be like, this is the weirdest birthday party I've ever had. (laughs) And I know I'm not inviting you next year, (laughs) right? It just sounds dumb. So at some point, however your day goes, now we happen to have services, uh, this next Saturday. And some people go, why would you have services? I thought it was about family. I was like, no, that's dumb. That's <laughs> no, about Jesus actually. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're going to be here in Jesus's place talking about Jesus. Uh, you don't have to come to that service. All I'm saying is that just remember Jesus is with you wherever you go. So if he's there, let's acknowledge him and let's say happy birthday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Um, That, Lord, I keep trying to understand grace. And it's so funny because I have so much grace in my life for other people. And yet so much of my anxiety is not understanding grace for me, from you. I pray that we would get it. I pray that we would understand the new identity that you've given us. That you call out and throw out before us victory statements. Lord, let it soak into our hearts. That we might be who we were built to be. In Jesus' name. Amen.